surprise. I'm now beginning a new series of pandemic podcasts in which instead of meeting authors, I'll be doing the socially distancing thing of reading aloud extracts of brilliant new books out this year. And so to kick us off, I want to start with a book I really enjoyed, and that's Breadwinner, An Intimate History of the Victorian Economy by Emma Griffin. So if you'll indulge me, let's kick it off. Introduction. In 1894, at the relatively late age of 30, Mary Molloy got married. She had met her husband, James O'Meara, in the local pub, and he was, by all accounts, a most plausible bachelor. Thirty-seven years old, he had worked as a merchant sailor in the army, as a coachman, and had recently arrived in Liverpool to work in the docks. Better still, he was reputed to come from a family of some means, and was telling tales of the good fortune that would come his way should he decide to marry. But even without the prospect of a family inheritance, marriage to James O'Meara promised Mary a better life than she could ever achieve on her own. She had been at work for nearly 20 years, but was still sharing a couple of rooms with her parents in the slum quarters of Liverpool. She had little hope of moving out into a home of her own on her pay of 12 shillings a week. As a docker, Jimmy could earn almost three times that amount, 30 shillings a week. In this marriage, Mary saw an opportunity to wrench herself from poverty. She had waited a long time for this day to come and embarked upon the union with high hopes. And the time for a union, such as James and Mary's, could hardly have been of more propitious. Propitious, sorry. <laughs> Victorian Britain has long been recognised as a place of unrivaled progress and prosperity. A series of extraordinary inventions. Trains, railways, bicycles, trams, tarmac, sewing machines, gaslighting, light bulbs, flashing toilets, typewriters, photography, telegraphs, telephones, were helping to transform the very fabric of life. All the standard economic measures, GDP, GNP, real wages, indicate steady rises throughout the 19th century. This combination of economic growth and new technologies was to usher in levels of wealth and comfort which earlier ge generations could only dream. Yet, as the century drew to a close, it became ever more apparent that not everyone was sharing in the nation's newfound riches. Large cities with their trams, railways and modern civic buildings might have signified the march of progress, but they also house large slum populations living in appalling squalor, and the newly created sensationalist newspaper press of the late 19th century lost little time in sharing lurid tales of poverty and vice in the urban slums with its readers. Scandals such as Jack the Ripper murders brought salacious stories of crime, drunkenness and prostitution in the East End to the sitting rooms of the well-to-do. Evidently, the world's most prosperous nation was home to some very old problems. Perhaps the greatest surprise, however, was that more sober attempts to quantify the extent of urban poverty painted the same grim picture. 
In the 1880s, the wealthy businessman Charles Booth set out to use his statistical skills to put some reliable figures to the prevalence of urban poverty. He was surprised to discover that around one-third of the population of London were living without adequate means for a decent subsistence. Attempts to recruit for the Second Boer War at the end of the 1890s provided further evidence of the wretched living conditions in the slums, which large numbers of volunteer recruits failing the medical examination. This then was not just the scaremongering and make-believe of socialists and newspaper hacks. By the end of the century, the British public and their politicians were forced to face an unpalatable truth. A century of prosperity had failed to lift many families out of poverty. It was, as if the American radical Henry George wrote, material progress does not merely fail to reduce poverty, it actively produces it. And this, he declared, was the great enigma of our times. From a 21st century perspective, the problem that Henry George identified does not perhaps seem so enigmatic. Certainly, Britain's national wealth grew throughout the 19th century. But as political economists since Karl Marx have pointed out, it is possible for newly created wealth to become concentrated in the hands of the few, leaving the masses as impoverished as ever. Few today would accept the breezy optimism associated with the mid-20th century economist Simon Kuznets that growth is a rising tide that lifts all boats. Since the publication of Piketty's Capital, it has become commonplace to argue that no less important than the amount of economic growth is the matter of how those gains are shared. In fact, we do not need to turn to the discipline of economics to find evidence that national wealth and working class gains may follow different trends. Recent research on Victorian and Edwardian Britain re reveals much the same thing. Certainly, and, and here I'm skipping a bit, certainly very little of the nation's rising GDP ever found its way into the hands of Mary O'Meara. Pressing poverty had forced Mary and her family from Dublin to Liverpool when she was a small child. In Liverpool, the family found itself in a room of a tenement building on St James's Street, in the heart of the city's slums. There, the family continued to grow. Five children had been born in Ireland, a further four were born in Liverpool. But the family's finances did not grow. There was no schooling or shoes or regular meals for any of them as children. Nor did marriage offer Mary the escape she'd hoped. The O'Meara estate, of course, quickly proved to be a mirage. Worse still, James O'Meara turned out to be far more interested in drinking than he was at working in the docks. He had realised that he could earn ten shillings for a couple of days, enough of the rent and enough to get the barest necessities of living, leaving him free for the rest of the week to pursue interests closer to his heart drinking and carousing. And so Mary's two children, she'd given birth to seven, were raised in just the same slums and abject poverty that she had ever known, living in one or two rooms in the worst courts of the city, often very hungry, shoeless and in rags. At the heart of Mary's inability to find a better life for herself was her marginalisation in the labour market. Mary could never hope to earn the 30 shillings a week that was in James's grasp. 
She had long ago reached her earning potential as an unskilled, unskilled female worker, a paltry 12 shillings weekly, and it was not enough for her to move out of her parents' slum dwelling. There were, of course, no state-sponsored mechanisms for redistributing wealth or sustaining low-income families in Victorian Britain. Wages were the sole mechanism by which wealth flowed into the working classes. But the workforce, and therefore those able to earn wages, look very different today. At the start of Victoria's reign, children as young as five or six could be put to paid employment. And although successive legislation restricted the employment of young children, in the 1890s children could still legally start work from the age of 10. Furthermore, though children joined the workforce in large numbers, their mothers generally did not. This was the logic of the so-called breadwinner wage, a bargaining concept that was successfully deployed by several campaigners and trade unions throughout the century. The breadwinner wage was one that was substantial enough for a man to keep his wife and young children out of the labour market altogether. This inevitably was an aspiration rather than a reality for many working class families. Nonetheless, it was a powerful ideology and one that effectively closed many avenues for women to earn a living wage themselves. At the age of 30, Mary had been at work for well over half her life. Yet still, she could not earn a wage that enabled her to live apart from her family. She took the only option available to her, marriage to a male wage earner. And she learned the inadequacy of the breadwinner family model in the cruelest way possible. Unable to earn herself, she and her two children were heavily dependent on James O'Meara's wage. And when that failed, they were plunged into a desperate poverty from which they were no, there was no escape. The highly gendered nature of the pre-1914 labour market has often been acknowledged, but its full implications have not. As highly marginalised members of the workforce, adult women did not take a direct share in the wealth created by industrialisation. Instead, their share reached them through the hands of their husbands and older children, for whom they, in turn, performed the unpaid work of the house. Real wages, so often upheld as the gold standard measure of living standards, are useful for telling us what men were able to earn, but they allow us to do no more than scratch the surface for the experience of everyone else. For women and children, economic security was determined by a host of smaller personal matters, that cannot be captured by such a smooth measure as the real wage. Matters such as finding a suitable husband, persuading him to spend his wages on his family and agreeing how best to allocate the food at the dinner table. Should eggs be a treat for the hard-working male breadwinner, for example, or put into a pudding for the whole family to enjoy? Economics always has the veneer of neutrality, of objectivity, but its analyses stop at the threshold of individual homes. Opening the door and peering inside reveals a deeply human story. And it is only by unpacking this story that the true meanings of the shift in aggregate totals, such as GDP and real wages, may be properly understood. Now, I am going to skip a few pages of the introduction and I thought we could delve into a more substantive chapter, the one I really liked, which is chapter one. The, the rest of the introduction is sort of a literature review of other people's contributions. So, so... Are you okay with this? Right. Chapter one. The title is, I worked all right, but I never got paid for my labour. Then has a subtitle, Women at Work. 
In the 1970s, in response to a call from a social historian based at Brunel University, Bronwyn Morris sent an untitled handwritten text describing her childhood and married life in the Welsh Valleys. She had been born in Aberdare in 1896 and started work at the age of 12 and a half. Bronwyn was 80 when she wrote her autobiography, yet she drew a clear continuity between herself as a 12-year-old child worker and the life she still lived. Like many women from the lower classes, Bronwyn's entire life had been devoted to housework. She had started working as a house servant in the 1900s and in the 1970s continued to fill her days with much the same tasks. That is, and here I quote, I still do washing, ironing and cleaning. The only things that had changed in the matter of pay. In those days, I performed these tasks in other people's homes for the princely sum of one shilling and sixpence a day. End quotes. Since marriage, she had carried on with the same round of washing, ironing and cleaning, but in her own home, of course, without payment. Bronwyn's life did not have sharp edges between things we tend to assume as distinct, childhood and adulthood, paid and unpaid work, work and home. For Bronwyn, each of these categories blurred into the next. as the defining characteristic of women's lives. For many of the female writers, and I should add here, this is Alice speaking, this book, this book is based on 600, over 600 working class autobiographies. So that's what she means by women writers. So for many of the female writers, the normal divisions between childhood, adolescence and adulthood that structure the traditional, brackets, male autobiography, are difficult to delineate. Looking back at their school days, for example, female writers did not necessarily perceive themselves to have been free from work in inverted commas. Schooling was made compulsory in 1880, and as the majority of the female autobiographers were born after that date, recollections of the writer's school day were a common feature of their narratives. Yet whilst education was a distinctive and relatively brief moment in a working-class childhood, many of the female writers revealed that their life had already been filled with a raft of domestic duties long before leaving school. Lily Purvis, for instance, considered that she had become, and I quote, a little maid of all work by the age of seven. At ten, she could bake, wash, iron and sew, and even repair a pair of stockings. The assumption of domestic duties was particularly common for old daughters in a family, who were put to looking after younger brothers and sisters some years before the end of their own school days. Some of the writers dated the end of their childhood to the birth of a younger sibling, an event that could happen while they were just children themselves. Doris Hunt mused that at the age of six, she was the eldest of four sisters. And looking back, that seemed to be the end of my carefree childhood. When Amy Langley's mother gave birth to her as a final child, she, and I quote, became from her birth Amy's responsibility. Amy was just eight years old at the time. Similarly, it was sometimes the birth of a younger child that triggered the end of a girl's education. Isabella Cook's school days ended with the arrival of her younger brother, Tommy. I didn't go to school anymore after that. I had to stay home and help. Isabella was 13 when Tommy was born, so her parents were legally permitted to withdraw her from school and put her to childminding. But when Isabella Templeton's mother did the same thing, she was only 11, and her mother's actions therefore broke the law. 
Years after the event, Isabel recalled with bitterness how her mother had illegally taken her from school so she could be put in charge of Mama's seventh child and become a skivvy for the family. From that moment, my childhood had gone. Her mother's defence was that she believed that girl's place was in the home, learning how to be a good housewife and mother. And this was far the most important, more important thing than learning things that were of no practical use in after years. The unpaid domestic work that would characterise the lives of most working class women started early for many girls, and often several years before the time of leaving school. Just as some girl had, girls had begun to assume domestic responsibilities before the end of their school days, so did others find that leaving school marked an increase in such responsibilities, rather than their first forays into the world of paid work. Certainly, a girl's school leaving did not necessarily coincide with the moment when she took up employment outside the home. Instead, it might mark the beginning of a transitional period of unpaid labour usually in the first instance for her own family. As Alice Chase explained, at the age of 14 she had left school, but she had not yet started work. I mean paid work. I worked all right, but I never got paid for my labour. Mother gave me any money, never gave me any money for the time, and I nearly ran off my feet doing errands. Unquote. Indeed, some parents were deeply ambivalent about sending their daughters out to work at all as Isabel Templeton's mother defiantly informed the school inspector when he came round to investigate the causes of Isabel's absence. A girl's place is in the home. As an elderly woman, Amy Gom ruminated upon how out of character it had been for her parents to allow her older sister to take a job at the factory. This was a thing with our parents. Home was the place for the girls. At the age of 18, Amy Andrews was still living with her parents and helping her mother with the two children that she had taken into nurse. But when the youngest of these started school, Amy had decided it was time to start earning my own living. Yet even at this relatively advanced age, her mother disputed the need to leave home at all, asking, why couldn't I be satisfied as I was? These girls' experiences were not unusual. Amongst the 140 female autobiographers who provided a detailed account of what they had done on leaving school, more than a third, 38%, indicated they had spent a period of time doing unpaid domestic work, usually for their immediate family, though occasionally for members of their extended family instead. For these girls, leaving school had not heralded the start of a paid job, but the intensification of unpaid work for their families. The connection between school leaving and domestic work may help to explain why so few girls had thought the end of their school days heralded an exciting or significant point, turning point in their lives. A girl of 12 or, or thereabouts knew, knew enough about the world to know there was little but housework awaiting her outside the school gates, and a sizable minority of the female authors had viewed further schooling as their their one and only hope for a more interesting life. A recurring motif amongst the female autobiographers is the disappointment of reaching school leaving age and the regret felt about the end of their education. Others wrote wistfully about scholarships that ram a school that they'd never been able to take up. 
Joe Balan was one of nearly a dozen of female writers who'd won a scholarship for the grammar school but had not been able to go. Although the school did not charge fees, her parents decided they could not afford all the attendant expenses of sending her there. So they found a position for her in service instead. It was an outcome that they were that was all too common for working class girls. This loss of education was interpreted in different ways. Looking back on their experiences, some adult writers were sympathetic to the hardships their families had faced and accepted the end of their school days as part of the natural order of things. May Jones, for example, knew, knew that staying on at school had been a, an utter impossibility and left it at that. Alice Collis believed that her great disappointment at abandoning her attempts to enter high school was shared by Dad, as he had suffered the same fate as a boy when his father was blinded at work. Edith Pratt was sorry not to take up her place at the grammar school with her two friends, but she had a wise head on her young shoulders, and even at that young age she had understood why her friends' lives were diverging from her own. One was the farmer's daughter, and the other the draper's daughter. So unlike her, the farm labourer's daughter, their families had plenty of money. Others harboured resentment that was slow to dissipate. Martha Heaton was less forgiving about the lack of support she had from her parents while preparing for her entrance exams for the high school. Mother was one of those who thought that the education of girls was wasted. In fact, it was not only her mother who'd failed to back her. When the forms of the, for the country scholarships arrived at home, her father refused to fill them in. But in Martha's narrative, it is her mother who gets the blame for lost opportunities. Despite all her hard work and excellent exam results, it made no difference. Mother had her wish. I did not get to go to the grammar school. Despite their promising starts at elementary school, these grammar school hopefuls joined the bulk of their peers and followed the traditional pathway mapped out for a working-class girl. They left school and either stayed at home as a full-time mother's helper or took up jobs with very limited prospects. Home was undoubtedly the least favoured. Alice Chase recounted the list of duties she had during the 15 months she spent running around as her mother's unpaid helper, including chopping wood, carrying coal, cleaner, clearing gates, dusting, cleaning, sewing and washing. She concluded it had been a hard life and she had been most unhappy during this period. At the age of 14, Agnes Cooper would have liked very much to do what most girls of my acquaintances seem to do, start work. But she was told by her parents that her place was in the home, helping mother with the children and with household duties. Quote. Kay Pearson also grew to hate her position as the family's and a quote, housekeeper, washerwoman, errand girl and cook. After a while in this role, she had great desire to go out to work and regretted that her mother would not let her go. My services, she glumly noted, were required at home. Housework for the family was perceived as hard and thankless work and was rarely a young girl's first choice. Part of the problem was that working with mother at home did not come with payment or any of the other rewards enjoyed by those who worked outside the home. So these girls found themselves enduring the loss of freedom that went with work with none of the advantages. The lack of any money was particularly irksome as girls became older and increasingly desired some autonomy in their lives. 
Amy Gone recalled how her brother's elder brother's weekly earnings of five shillings had enabled him to devote some attention to his appearance. Collars, ties and socks were bought from his allowance or an expression of his personality. No such expression was permitted for the girls in the family who worked within the home rather than outside it. Amy and her sister's clothing was made by their mother until their early 20s. The recipient had no say in the choice of colour or style. Mother chose the material, the style. There was no really choice about style. Quote. Nellie Barter. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to sneeze. I've got a really terrible sneeze. <coughs> sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> there was a oh, fuck. Okay, Nellie Barter found herself in the same position. As the, as the daughter helping at home, she had no money at all, just my food and clothes, and a few coppers from her father, if she ever asked for them, but I rarely did. Grace folks resented the difference between herself and her older sister. Grace stayed at home to care for her sick mother and run the home and was dependent upon her father for a small amount of pocket money, while her sisters were out at work and earned enough to buy herself nice clothes and go on day trips run by the Girls' Guild. Very few of the female autobiographers indicated that work inside the home was easier than work outside it. But several commented on the distinct, distinct disadvantage it entailed. Domestic work was not paid, and the lost opportunities for self-individuation that even a small amount of pocket money provided were keenly felt. Even when girls did eventually start working outside their own home, they sometimes found themselves working without payment. Some parents were simply relieved if they were able to find another family better place to feed their growing daughter and did not consider whether the position came with payment, let alone training or long-term potential. Writing about how she had been sent to her aunts to work as a servant, Bessie Wallace recalled in disgust. I would received the magnificent wage of absolutely nothing. With Ada Hut when Ada Hutchinson turned 13, her elder married sister decided the time had come for her to start work and sent for her. Ada had to earn her food and became her sister's unpaid drudge. Quote, milking, digging, churning, washing, cleaning and looking after her sister's eight children. Occasionally, even formal arrangements with non-family members went unremunerated. Dot Starn remembered turning up for her first day at work, a job in a florist shop that had been advertised in the newspaper, only to be told by her new employer, I don't pay wages, you know. Many would pay me to teach them the, to teach them to the trade. She did not even let Dot keep the occasional tip she was given. Not only did girls tend to enter the labour market later than boys, they also frequently found that their employment, once it had started, was interrupted, according to the situation at home. Several of the female autobiographers spent their teens moving in and out of paid work according to their parents' need and wishes. And it was not unusual for them to be recalled by parents who felt their, own service, who felt their services would be better employed under their own roof. As a result, daughters remained at the beck and call of their family, well into their twenties, and sometimes beyond. Amy Andrews had been delighted to leave her domineering mother and work as a nursery nurse for a family in Lowestroff. But it wasn't long before she found herself back at home again. After a few short months at Lowestoft, her mother sent her a letter, indicating that she was ill and Amy needed to return to look after her. She packed up, leaving all her, and I quote, happiness behind me. 
only to discover on arrival that her mother had made a miraculous recovery. Some parents did not even bother to confect a reason for their daughter's return. Mrs. Stringer simply told her daughter's employer that she would leave after a seven-year month's notice, as she was wanted at home, and then wrote a letter to Maggie informing her of what she had done. Going to skip a little bit in the interest of time. Um, let's go to just the end of this chapter. So you've got a sort of sense of what's going on. Basically, girl, my, my reading at least, my synopsis is that many girls were keen on paid work. They really didn't like the housework, but their wages were so low, as Emma Griffin documents, that their parents just didn't really see it as worthwhile. And the, and the demands at home were so great. So let me skip to the end of that chapter. It is unsurprising then that so many women opted to marry. In most parts of the country, all that was available for women was a small range of poorly remunerated jobs with no prospect of progression. It was virtually impossible for most women to achieve a life of independence through their own labour. And this forced them to look elsewhere for economic security. It was not through work that women would take their share of Victorian Britain's economic boom for themselves. It was through marriage. Pat O'Mara observed that before her marriage in her late 20s, his mother was working in the clothing industry. And I quote, a hard job holding out little economic hope. No wonder he thought that she had taken the fateful decision to throw in her lot with my father. Marriage presented women with their best chance of a home of their own, a family, and some kind of economic security. Low female wages were not merely a passive reflection of a society that devalued women and their work. They also played an active role in keeping women subordinate by forcing them into a position of dependency on men, first with respect to their fathers, then with respect to their husbands. Making sense of women's lives therefore requires us to move into an unfamiliar terrain. Women's experiences were not captured by male wage rates, yet they were deeply bound up with male earnings and male patterns of behaviour. As such, we need to bring the economic histories of men and women together. It is time to think afresh about women's lives by looking at the intimate, personal and sexual relationships in which money was generated and shared. Next chapter, which is called A Man's Work Was a Man's Life. And I just want to give you a little snippet because this next chapter is also very important and great. Yet even if we acknowledge the very real difficulties and disadvantages that men faced in the workplace, it remains undeniable that their pay, conditions and opportunities were vastly superior to those available to women. For many writers, both male and female, the gendered nature of work was too obvious and too natural to warrant much discussion. But the situation was explained with great clarity by one woman who felt disgruntled at the gulf between her and her brothers. Bessie Wallace recalled how much she had dreaded the thought of leaving school. I didn't mind going out to work. It was just that girls were so very inferior to boys. They were the breadwinners. and They came first. They could always get work in one of the mines, starting off as a pony boy, then working themselves up to rope runners and trammers for the actual coal hewers. Girls were nobodies. They could only go into domestic service. End quote. When girls left school, they faced the prospects of unskilled, often heavy work for low wages and long hours, with very little prospect of advancement. And this was why marriage was so vital. 
young women needed to forge a relationship with a male wage earner if they were ever to leave their family home, whereas men could achieve this through their own labour. But perhaps the most important point to make about men and their work was is also the most obvious. They got paid for it. Wages were paid to males who carried them back to the family. And that act of bringing money into the home changed the bearer's relationship to those with whom the money was ultimately shared. With paid work came an enhanced position within the family, as one former miner perceptively noticed when they started work. Sons earned status as well as wages. The feeling of importance that came with handing over a wage, no matter how meagre, was frequently captured by the autobiographers. James Sexton's early employment in the local glassworks earned him two shillings a week and paid the rent of the family's slum dwellings. As he later observed, his mother's appreciation of the money gave him an exaggerated idea of my importance in the scheme of things. End quote. Wilfred Pickles shared that feeling of importance when he started work as an errand boy and made a much-needed contribution to his family's income. Even very small sums were sufficient to stir a boy's pride. David Davies, um, not the Tory MP, I assume, uh, earned a weekly shilling for a hard day's work as a butcher's Saturday boy. I was conscious of being somebody, of being somebody when I handed the shilling over to my mother. I glowed with pride. I was a wager and I was somebody for I was earning a shilling a week. More than one writer recalled how the ca cachet that came with wage earning more than compensated for the actual work itself. John Patterson's first thought at being put to work as a gardener's assistant for a penny a day was resentment over the loss of liberty. But he soon came to appreciate the benefits that came with his new role. After all, the job itself was not too bad. I did not mind the work. I liked digging, weeding, sowing, attending to the cattle and whatnot. Furthermore, there was something intangible about his new place in the social order as a wage earner. Such things gave life an air of responsibility and made me somebody. As the autobiographies repeat, autobiographers repeated many times over, male labour had a value which was universally respected within their families. Wage earners made a vital financial contribution to the household, which freed them of the obligation to help out with the housework. Michael Conway did not much enjoy working as a half-timer in a Stockport mill, but as he noted as a child, as, as, but as he noted, as each child started in the mill, they were relieved of most of the home jobs. Harold Brown observed that although his work as a miner was a strain, it came with the distinct advantage of freeing him from chores at home. These were now performed by my younger brothers. Right. Um, let me skip again. Skip again. Okay. Many of the differences between men and women were not new. Men had always earned higher wages than women. And women had always been marginalised in the workplace. Only ever able to earn the most miserable of wages. This situation received a more formal intellectual justification in the 19th century as male unionists started to campaign for a breadwinner wage. But the phenomenon of unequal pay was not new. What had changed, however, and remarkably so, were the opportunities open to working men. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, all workers, both male and female, had limited options in the labour market. Of course, men had enjoyed uh, access to a wider range of employment options than women. And of course, their wages had been higher. 
but they were still shoehorned into relatively few sectors, many of them providing very little in the way of opportunity. And this was what had changed over the 19th century. Industrialization helped produce a dramatic expansion in employment opportunities for men, and most of them could be grasped with, within nothing more than a few years of elementary schooling. Low pay for women was nothing new, but the divergence in men and women's earning potential was. The significant improvement in real wages that men gained over the 19th century have been widely recognised and rightly celebrated. The purpose of this chapter has been to suggest that something less positive was hiding in its slipstream, a sharp uptick in inequality between the sexes. Leap to the conclusion. So let's go. This book opened with the enigma, or at least the contradiction, articulated by Henry George in the 1870s, that material progress did not seem to be reducing poverty so much as creating it. It is now time to return to that puzzle. Does our study of 600-odd autobiographies help us understand why decades of robust economic growth fail to lift all out of poverty? Of course, it is always possible for growth and poverty to coexist. All economies have their poorest quartile and so by definition have a subset who are poorer than everyone else. At the same time, the absolute level of wealth held by that poorest quartile can shift upwards over time so that poverty, whilst never disappearing, nevertheless changes significantly in substance and form. If this was the case, George's enigma might be chimera. Chimerical? A true statement, yet one that fails to capture the secular improvements that even those at the bottom enjoyed. To some extent, this was the case for 19th century Britain. In 1830, the poorest families faced a very real and continuous struggle to feed themselves, a struggle that was shared by many neighbours, and which could rarely be alleviated through the better stewarding of the meagre resources they had to hand. By the end of the century, food was both cheaper relative to incomes and more plentiful. So children who were not being fed in their homes now had a reasonably good chance of finding food by some other means. Recall Louis Strides picking edible food out of the gutters and snatching it off other children at school. Or Sid Kauser pinching fruit from the barrels in the street piled high with tempting produce. Or Arthur Harding making a satisfactory dinner from the chips he cadged off customers at the fish and chip shops. It is objectively true that these children of late Victorian and Edwardian Britain consumed a better diet than those living a century earlier in homes and communities that had no food to pinch or share. And yet, to dwell upon this alleviation of hunger would surely be to place the emphasis in the wrong place. This was not a linear march towards progress. Edwardian Britain had sufficient food for all. But that Louis Stride got it by picking it up from the gutter is also a sign that something was deeply wrong. In seeking to understand the survival of poverty in an increasingly prosperous society, Breadwinner, the title of the book that is, picks up themes that historians have long wrestled with. But if the problem is old, the method I pursued here is not. As a historical source, working class autobiographies are well known and widely used. Just not 
to understand big problems like the extent and meaning of economic growth. The colourful personal stories contained in life histories are presumed to belong to the realm of social and cultural history, while economic historians for the most part turn to statistical records collected by social elites and modern economic theory in order to explain how and when the economy grew and who really benefited. What happens if we link these two traditions? I have tried to show here that we can use autobiographical accounts to bridge the social and the economic. We can mine these sources, not simply for lively descriptions of the period. Working class voices can shed light on large economic questions as well. Louis Stride, the Ill illegitimate child of a petty thief and sex worker born and raised in the affluent city of Bath, was the epitome of poverty amidst plenty. She received a schooling that was even more scanty than that of a typical working-class child and spent her entire adult life as a domestic cleaner, chambermaid, cook and tea lady. No one turns to the tea lady for economic wisdom. But Louise Stride did have insight into why, as a child, she picked food out of the gutter rather than ate it from a plate. She did not gesture to impersonal economic forces, but to matters much closer to home, an absent father later a drunken father, and a mother suffering from mental illness, wholly unable to earn the family bread or to bake it. Nor was this all. As Louis correctly observed, her problems were compounded by the individualistic political ethos of the times. There was no welfare state bounties, nor public body to do something in such cases as mine. No one cared about the vulnerable children who slipped through the net. Louise Stride understood the political and economic realities of her situation. Now it is time for us to listen. All families are unique, and Louise Stride's was particularly so, but the advantage of surveying several hundred autobiographies is it enables us to distinguish between the superficial peculiarities unique to particular families, a mother who paid the rent and other debts with sex rather than money, edible food picked out of the gutter, and the underlying forces that unify diverse experiences, that is, gendered pay, fatherlessness, alcoholism, and the absence of welfare. And if the specifics of Louis' household were unusual, the general contours that shaped her experiences were far less so. Men took the lion's share of the nation's wage bill. Women provided the lion's share of the domestic work that kept families fed, clothed, and housed. All working-class families faced the struggle to procure sufficient income for decent living. But many households faced an additional challenge in getting money from male earners into the hands of wives and mothers, either through the absence of a breadwinner or the tight cold he kept on his own earnings. If we can grasp this and position at the centre of our understanding of economic change the enigmas and contradictions about how late Victorian, Edwardian and Britain largely disappear. Economic growth in the 80 years after 1830 was real and substantial, and it was accompanied by steady increases in the real wage as well. But the benefits of wage growth were not shared equally between the sexes, owing to the custom of paying women much lower wages than men, and their exclusion from most of the new high-wage economy. Historians, so far as they have troubled about the history of gender pay, have generally made sense of the large gender pay gap by pointing to the different productivity of male and female workers, or simply by reading low pay as a reflection of that society's lower regard for women. But... 
From the perspective of the autobiographies, the context and consequences of low female pay appear in a very different light. Women's low wages were not simply a reflection of their low status. They were a vital prop that served to maintain that reality. After all, nothing kept women subordinate to men so effectively as depriving them of money of their own. Low female wages ensured that all households had access to the unpaid female labour necessary for the maintenance of a home and they forced women into a position of dependency with respect to the men in their lives. This unequal access to wages, to money, is foundational to understanding the developments we have studied here. Wage growth diverted a greater share of the nation's wealth directly to men's hands. And for this reason, wage growth and living standards were locked in a troubled embrace. A good male wage could enrich the family fund, but it could also destabilise it, leaving families no richer than before. The male wage is thus the key to understanding both rising levels of prosperity and also deepening inequality and the very substantial segment of the population who are left behind. So long as men conform to social expectations, working hard and sharing their wages of their wives, the fit between real wages and living standards was good. Around 30% of the autobiographers had a father present throughout their childhood who behaved in this way. And whilst this was rarely sufficient to ensure luxurious living, it certainly ensured some degree of comfort and created an equivalence between male earnings and family living conditions. But over and again, High male wages did not have this outcome. Indeed, one of the most extraordinary and unexpected discoveries from the autobiographies is that a good male wage was not always the unmitigated blessing we might expect. And the low wages of pre-industrial Britain had kept families poor, but they had also established an equality within the household between the value of money income and the value of unpaid labour that had transformed meal money into meals and comfort. Let me repeat that. The low wages of pre-industrial Britain had kept families poor. Yes. But they had also established an equality within the household between the value of money income and the value of the household labour that had transformed money into meals and comfort. So long as a male worker could not afford to purchase cooked meals, he could only fulfil his subsistence needs by handing his full wage to his wife. He may have been the notional head of household, but in reality, he was every bit as dependent upon his wife's earnings to provide habitable lodgings, cooked meals and adequate clothing as she was dependent upon his wage. The high male earnings created by industrialization snapped apart this equality between wage-earning husbands and their non-wage-earning wives and children. A man could now maintain a reasonable standard of living by depositing a part of his wage with his wife and keeping a part back for his own personal consumption. This alternative form of family life was not merely hypothetical, It was the lived experience for a large minority, nearly 20% of all families. Nor was this the only force creating a breach between male wages and family living standards. Fully one quarter of the autobiographers had, at some point during their childhood, lived in a household without a a breadwinner at all. Fatherlessness had two distinct causes. The mortality rate was relatively high. Paternal death deprived just over 10% of all writers of their father, and consequently their household of a male wage. 
Of even greater significance, however, was the large number of fathers who are living but absent, nearly 15% of the total. And as with unreliable breadwinning, paternal desertion was closely related to the high-wage economy. As men were only empowered to live away from their wives when they earned enough to buy the services she provided, cooked meals and clean clothes on the open market. When put together with the families who had lost their breadwinner through death, the outcome was a very large subset of families, almost half of all the autobiographers, who were not carried along on the, right, on the tide of economic growth, whose experiences were largely divorced from trends in the real wage. Of course, the family had never been entirely reliable as a means of ensuring all citizens received a share of resources adequate for a decent living. In the 18th century and before, the death rate was high, so some families had lacked a male breadwinner, and there had also inevitably been some men who had successfully managed to evade their family responsibilities. Yet the face-to-face -face nature of pre-industrial society had done a reasonably good job of mitigating these problems and, and forcing families to look after their own. Fathers, after their families, and when fathers died, extended male kin to step into their place. We must not idealise this pattern of behaviour or imbue it with cultural significance it does not deserve. There is no significance in the earlier autobiographies that strong family units could uh, overcome the disadvantages paid by low, posed by low incomes, or that they created a special happiness and well-being for those involved. The pooling of all available money and labour was not rooted in particular emotional values. It was nothing more than a strategy for survival. As male wages started to rise, new choices opened to the men who earned them. But they were just that, a choice, and not one that every man made. In rural areas in particular, most men had conformed to social expectations about male provision. Even as agricultural wages began to increase in the late 19th century, prizing open a gap between the value of male wages and female labour, Farm workers overwhelmingly continue to share their earnings with their wives. Though, of course, the absence of conveniences like hot running water and cooked food in their communities may have played some role, encouraging them to do so. Many men in urban areas also made this choice, sharing their higher wages with their wives to the benefit of both themselves and all others in the household. However, good wages offered men a a new kind of autonomous decision-making power. A power, that a power that some grasped for the their families and some grasped for themselves alone. Money enabled, rather than mandated, irregular working patterns, the non-sharing of wages, heavy drinking and paternal desertion. Indeed, the back-breaking labour that, that some men needed to perform in order to earn a wage may have contributed to the excessive drinking and all the problems that flowed from it. At any rate, the outcome the, was that new strains were imposed upon the family model, turning a sympathetic, turning a system that functioned crudely into one that struggled in some areas to function at all. At the same time, these developments established a more complex hierarchy of working-class families. There was, of course, considerable variation in male wages across and within different trades. Superposed upon this variation in wage rates, however, was great variety in the degree to which men funneled their wages into the common family fund. 
The failure of some fathers to disperse their earnings to the families created further divisions and inequalities between men and women, between fathers and children, and amongst all those we conveniently label the working class as well. With little doubt, rising male wages and deepening social inequality were interconnected rather than distinct aspects of the period. In drawing attention to the negatives carried along by economic progress, widening gender inequality, deepening social inequality and the widespread misuse of alcohol, it should not be imagined that I am singing an elegy for a simpler, purer world of pre-industrial Britain. Regret for historical change is pointless. The Industrial Revolution did happen, Britain did urbanise, male wages did rise. In any case, as I have argued elsewhere, there is little to envy about the pre-industrial world of low wages, underemployment, crushing poverty and widespread hunger. Our challenge is to understand historical change without slipping into an unwarranted nostalgia for the poverty and hardships endured by earlier generations. There can be no denying that Victorian economic growth had vastly increased the wealth of the nation by the outbreak of the war in 1914. Yet whilst industrial capitalism could create wealth, it was itself unable to distribute it in such a way that a child such as Louis Stride had enough food to eat. At the time this book closes, we are still some way off, away from the welfare bounties that an older Louis identified as a useful response to cases such as hers. As such, her problems were rooted not simply in failings within her own family, but also in a wider political failing to provide welfare to those in serious want. In the second half of the 20th century, state-sponsored initiatives to introduce the layer of defence for families lacking income and successfully swept away the worst excesses of inequality and deprivation. As our forensic analysis of the family makes clear, Government-funded welfare provision offered the promise of a far more robust form of social protection for the poor and vulnerable than wages ever had been able to achieve. Above all, Breadwinner, this book, has sought to show how much we can learn by looking at those little historical details that do not usually make the cut. Our starting point has been a scattered collection of life writing by ordinary men and women produced in different forms and formats, and of vastly different, differently levels of quality, lucidity and insight. Some, as the early champions of this material suggested, might even be considered anecdotal, desultory and personal in nature. But the personal is not separate from those other big categories with which historians work, the political and economic. Left to their own devices, people will talk about their families. Not because they cannot see the big picture, but because this is precisely the way that individuals can make sense of the big picture. And if we want to address large historical questions, we can do no better than heed their account. Well, thank you for listening. That was Breadwinner, An Intimate History of the Victorian Economy by Emma Griffin, published by Yale University Press, out now, read by yours truly. <laughs>